This week on the show, we cover Linux and previously Firewalls comparisons, part one, in a friendly manner, why Netflix chose an Nginx as the heart of its CDN, a little bit uh, looking back um, how they started, protect your web servers against PHP shells and malwares, using AB, installing and running GitLab, how-to, and more in this week's episode of Easy Now. Easty Now, episode 516, Computer Time Origins. Recorded on the 21st of June, 2023, the summer solstice. I guess, I mean, the days are going to get shorter now. And that'll mean in like six weeks, I'll be able to sleep all night without birds waking me up. But then in four months, it'll be really dark and I'll be complaining. So there's just no balance here at all. Then you will miss the birds again. Yeah. I will miss the birds, yeah. Mm. I hear there's bird sounds on the internet. Really? Yeah, yeah, on various channels. It's amazing what they have on the internet. Great, right? By the way, this episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. We are your show hosts, Benedict Reuschling. And Tom Jones. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, we do a whole episode with bird sounds in the background. I, I, there are bird sounds in the background, but my microphone isn't picking them up. But the window is open. And so ah, JT good. might hear them, but I doubt it because they're quite soft. But I can hear them. So he I'm having a very them. pleasant time. He, he will lower our voices and the bird sounds will go louder. So everyone's <laughs> happy then. Uh, I, mean, I, I don't know where you live, Benedict, but all I can imagine is very industrial road next to you. It is, yeah. Really? <laughs> pigeons in the morning wake us up. That's crazy. I have like farmland and rob roy um oh yeah. no i've just given away exactly where i live <laughs> yeah are those duels waking you up sometimes in the morning like when they the, do the, the thing of people fighting yeah no. no um no i've never been woken up by people fighting um but the birds the birds are very loud right now like this is a show about bsd it, um, it, it is yeah and the first headline is Linux versus FreeBSD, Linux and FreeBSD Firewalls, Ultimate Guide Part 1. So expect another one in the future. But for this, it starts with, when it comes to choosing a firewall technology for your operating system, the options can be overwhelming. This is particularly true for Linux and FreeBSD, which offer multiple choices. In this article, we'll take a closer look at four of the most popular firewall options on both systems, IP tables, NF tables, IPFW, and PF to help you make an informed decision. Uh, firewalls act as network filters, allowing some packets to flow while blocking others. The decision is usually based this decision is usually based on factors such as the packet source and destination address, which site initiates the network connection and network port numbers. The Linux and, the Linux and FreeBSD firewalls are stateful, which means they can also remember details of past packets to track ongoing connections. Firewalls are commonly used to protect systems that share a network link with untrusted systems, but they can also be useful to block unwanted outgoing network connections initiated by badly behaved software or users on your own system. I like the Lego firewall picture they put up here, so it's kind of uh, nice. Uh, Linux firewall technologies. On Linux, NF tables is IP tables successor rather than a competing alternative. However, IP tables remains relevant. It is widely deployed, and NF tables includes a compatibility layer for IP tables commands. 
Many people have experience in using it along with the IP6 tables, ARP tables, and EB tables variants. So, you're still following? Okay. Aside from dropping the duplication for IPv6, ARP and bridging, NF tables was designed to be faster at handling the rules. The option letters used for rules with IP tables have been replaced by a more intuitive syntax inspired by TCP dump and, incidentally, more similar to the syntax used by the FreeBSD firewalls. <laughs> In addition, you may come across FirewallD on Red Hat, Rivet, distributions and UFW on Ubuntu. These aren't actually separate firewall platforms, they're an abstraction layer for the underlying firewall, typically IP tables, although FirewallD now supports an NF tables backend also. So these firewall abstraction layers provide a simpler view to cover common use cases. Even if you use FirewallD, UFW and other abstractions, uh, such as that of OpenWRT, uh, can be useful to have a basic understanding of the underlying firewall to debug complicated cases. On the other hand, there is FreeBSD firewall technologies. This article started out by making it clear that the war between Unix OSs is largely pointless. Understanding the difference between distributions and making the right choice is very likely the only argument worth having. So instead of demonizing, yep, we learned straight into that one, we're going to talk about how to leverage what FreeBSD has to offer. FreeBSD's firewall, PF, is the basis of several widely used network appliance or router distributions, most notable PFSense and its competing fork OpenSense. It's worth pointing out the difference between OpenSense and FreeBSD PF because the latter has substantially diverged, including enough differences in rule syntax to make copying and pasting between the two unwise. So the PF firewall enjoys a reputation for being fast and secure with intuitive syntax while also offering powerful features like PFSync, which synchronizes state between two firewalls. So actions apply to packages. When configuring a firewall, the first step to decide on the default policy. Typically, best practice is default deny, meaning all packets will be dropped unless a rule specifically allows them in. For those who prefer the opposite approach, a default policy allows packets to pass unless a rule specifically drops them. Okay, so there's descriptions for the three of them, IP tables, NF tables, IPFW, and PF. Uh, they're quite short, but I want to cover a bit further the actual common functionality because you can read up about uh, many of these firewalls uh, somewhere or maybe know about them already. Aside from pronouncing a verdict to drop or accept packets, all the firewalls support a wealth of other actions. This includes functionalities such as logging and counting packets, saving state to track connections, applying traffic shaping, or changing the way the packets is routed. The rule syntax is showing a rule to let's show a rule to demonstrate the basic syntax differences and to give you a feel for what rules look like with the different firewalls. We'll start with a rule to permit incoming connections on a mail server that has services running on TCP ports 25, 110, which is POP3, and 143, IMAP. So IP tables does the following. Uh, we're concerned with incoming packets, so we'll specify the input chain for IP tables. There's a slash p option for matching the protocol, in this case TCP. For all but the most basic rules, we need to enable the extension, in this case multiport, for matching the destination port numbers. Lastly, we use a jump to specify a target, which is accept. So this reads IP tables dash capital A input dash p TCP dash m multiport dash dash d ports 25, 110, 143, and dash j accept. NF tables in a fully unconfigured state, NF tables lacks any tables or chains. We first need to create a table named filter and chain named input, to which we can add our rule. 
INET refers to the address family. So you do NFT add table INET filter and NFT add chain INET filter inputs. Type filter hook input priority zero policy drop. Okay. With these in place, the NF table rule contains the same basic elements for IP tables. NFT add rule INET filter input TCP D port 25, 110, 143, except uh, IPFW. They provide a rule number for the rule explicitly. The specific number used is not meaningful beyond process order. In their example, they use rule for 120, simply means after 1 till 119 and before 121. And up. Okay, so that goes. IPFW add 420 allow TCP from any to me 25, 110, 143 in. Okay, next is PF. PF uses the word pass to denote packets that are accepted. Otherwise, the rule assembles, uh, resembles that for IPFW closely enough to that the explanation of individual elements need not be repeated. PF goes, P pass in proto TCP from any to any port, 25, 110, 143. Okay, so they have also a, a section at the end, miscellaneous syntactical issues. Given that the rules as a whole either do or don't match based on several aspects of packets, they can be viewed as Boolean algebra expressions. Adding refinements to a rule by matching further aspects of a packet acts logically as a conjunction or AND operation. Where lists are given, such as that for the port numbers in these examples, these are matched logically as an OR. Otherwise, it is often necessary to add an additional rule to achieve an OR operation. For negations, IP tables allows options to, to be preceded by an exclamation mark. For PF, an exclamation mark is used before the matched value, like from exclamation mark 10.00 slash 8, uh, 127.16 slash 0.0.12, and so on. IPFW uses the keyword not in a similar manner, and for NF tables, it is exclamation mark equals. Not that exclamation marks need to be quoted in some shells. Okay. Oh, note, yeah, this is important. The rules in this example apply to services running on their local system. When opening network ports on a device that is doing routing, it is worth being aware that while ports are often associated with particular applications like TCP port 22 for SSH and UDP port 53 for DNS, someone with malicious intent can tunnel anything they like such as a diverse shell over any port. There are approaches for restrict or detect this, such as only exposing access via application layer, proxy servers, or running intrusion detection systems, doing depackage inspections as part of the filtering. So look out for part two, where they discuss the implementation of FreeBSD and Linux firewalls by touching on egress actions, listing rules, and viewing counters, and just some general useful tips on how to go beyond the basic implementation. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I... <clears throat> I, I, I never understood why so many people like PF. I mean, the syntax is good, but there's like a big argument for PF over IPFW. And I've asked Christoph Provost many times, and he genuinely has no idea how people find PF. He just looks after the code. <laughs> <laughs> well, previously, there's a, there's a third firewall, so don't rule that one out. And there's possibly a fourth firewall <laughs> if George Never Neil ever finishes it. Sneaked in, yeah. Um, I, I did a GSOC <laughs> where we did some firewall test suite stuff. And if you get more liberal about the definition of a firewall, like if a firewall is a set of rules that allows packages packets to be forwarded or not, mm. you get to like seven firewalls in FreeBSD because there are parts of IPv6 which are technically a firewall and you need to test. Yeah. Because if you set some sys controls, you can block packets 
And so you want to be able to evaluate this. Oh, yeah. RST responses and stuff. Yeah. So you mm. can set up loads of stuff. So fireballs are fascinating. I just love that the, all the holy wars are about syntax and nothing about I, I, IPFW is a really cool implementation. It I think it runs a virtual machine for processing packets in the kernel, which is fascinating. It just has a weird syntax, so people don't love it. Yeah, I guess it's easier probably if you've used OpenBSD PF than migrating that to FreeBSD for I, whatever I, reason. I genuinely think it's like a weight of documentation. There's not a ton of documentation for how to do things in IPFW, so yeah. people don't use it. Um, and also NAT for a long time in IPFW was a nightmare, and it was really easy in PF, but that's been fixed now. Mm. They just need to change the default deny rule. One day I'll prepare that commit. Okay, <laughs> we're waiting for that. Okay. Um, Next up, we have a, a blast from the past. Um, we have an article on the Nginx tech blog from 2015. Um, I think this is by Tony Morrow of F5, Senior Content Marketing Manager. I'm not sure. Uh, they write, in the few years since its introduction, <laughs> that's, that's quite funny now, it's been around <laughs> yeah, for a while. Back. In the few years since its introduction, Netflix's online video streaming service has grown to serve over 50 million subscribers in 40 countries. And I'm going to add in 2023, it's like 50% of the internet traffic. We've already shared some of the best practices that Netflix software development engineers adopted as they transitioned from a traditional monolith development process to continuous delivery and microservices in, and these are all links, Adopting microservices and Netflix lessons for architectural design and adopting microservices and Netflix lessons for team and process design. In this post, we'll discuss another core contributor to Netflix success, its content delivery network, CDN, OpenConnect. We're proud that Nginx runs on every OpenConnect delivery appliance, playing a key role in Netflix's ability to keep pace with the explosive growth of the video service. Nginx's Gleb Shmirnoff has worked alongside the OpenConnect team for over two years. And last October at our user conference, Nginx 2014, he explained why Nginx chose that Netflix chose Nginx along with FreeBSD to power its crucial part of his business. Um, isn't Gleb now in Netflix? I anyway. think he is, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Netflix initially outsourced streaming video delivery to three large CDN vendors, Akamai Level 3 and Limelight. As the service became more popular, Nginx decided that building and managing its own CDN made sense for several reasons. From a practical perspective, the CDN vendors were struggling to expand their infrastructure at a pace that matched the growth and customer demand for Netflix's video streaming. From a financial perspective, the expense of outsourcing was quickly becoming prohibitive as the volume of streamed video increased, a challenge experienced by many popular applications and web properties. From a business perspective, it was clear that video streaming was replacing DVD, yeah, we can say it's done that. Um, leading is Netflix's primary source of revenue, and it didn't make sense to outsource a critical piece of the company's main business. Most importantly, Netflix built its own CDN in order to have greater control over application delivery and user experience to provide optimal streaming media delivery to customers. Netflix needed to maximize its control over three basic components in the delivery train. Chain. The user's video player, Netflix already controlled this component because its developers write all the device-specific apps used by customers to view Netflix content. The network between the user and Netflix servers. There's no way to control the component directly, but Netflix minimizes the network distance to its customers by providing free video streaming appliances to ISPs in exchange for rack space in the ISP's data centers for housing the appliances. Appliances are also placed at internet exchange points to serve customers whose ISPs are not interested in housing third-party equipment. Video streaming is particularly sensitive to packet delay and loss, misordered arrival, and unpredictable jittery round-trip times inherent to TCP IP, and minimizing the network distance reduces the potential exposure to these anomalies. Anomalies. 
The video server, OpenConnect itself, running its own CDN, gives Netflix freedom to tune the CDN software to compensate for internet anomalies as much as possible. It can run custom TCP connection control algorithms and HTTP modules. It, also, it can also detect server and network problems very quickly and reroute clients to alternative servers, then log into the server hardware and troubleshoot from the inside. Netflix was able to optimize OpenConnect for video streaming in a way that's not possible with a generic CDN provided by a vendor. OpenConnect enables Netflix to offer a superior user experience, lower cost, and greater visibility into the performance of application around the world. From the start, Netflix's goal was, as Gleb puts it, to get more and more gigabits per second from a single box. Specifically, Netflix needed to maximize the number of subscribers each appliance could serve concurrently. The OpenConnect engineers anticipated needing to fine-tune the software to achieve this goal, so they decided to go with open-source software for its unlimited extensibility. As mentioned previously, Netflix places its video streaming appliances in the data centers of its customers' ISPs when possible. Because the software running on the appliances would be in the hands of third parties, Netflix chose projects that use a BSD-style license rather than a GPL. The specific open-source projects Netflix chose were FreeBSD as the operating system. Because it's known for fast, uh, to be fast and stable, the developer community is strong and willing to work with vendors. Nginx has the streaming media service. It provided speed and stability. It's its proven speed and stability was important because Netflix wanted to launch OpenConnect as quickly as possible without the need to tweak it to just get going. Once the CDN was up and running, Netflix was able to examine traffic patterns and fine-tune the Nginx settings. Another benefit of Nginx is that although the open-source software is distributed under a BSD-style license, all of its core developers are full-time employees of Nginx Inc., which provides enterprise-class support for its commercial product, Nginx Plus. In this regard, it combines the best features of OS at open-source software and commercial software. Nginx's flexible framework for running custom solutions also appealed to Netflix and the OpenConnect team has created modules specific to its video streaming needs. Combining FreeBSD and Nginx yields further benefits. Nginx's event-driven design is one of the keys to outstanding performance, and FreeBSD's KQ event notification system call is one of the best APIs for multiplexed I.O. Without any modification required, Nginx can use send file system call together with can use the send file system call together with the AIO read system call. Together the calls avoid blocking IO blocking on disk IO, leading to outstanding performance. Nginx Plus and Nginx can optimize your application delivery too. Uh, and there was an ad for Nginx. Uh, this is a great article. I wonder what's changed. Like I bet lots of stuff's changed. Yeah. I think, and, uh, I, I think it's still FreeBSD and Nginx, but I'm sure the balance is different. That's certainly the case, yeah. And uh, they're still uh, you know, making it better and quicker and I'm, faster. I'm, I'm not aware of more recent um, technical previews about their technology stack than this. Mm. Um, maybe in the last couple of years. No, nothing in the last couple of years. It'd be really interesting to know how all the new services, you know, all the ones that have popped up basically since 2019, mm. are doing this. Because I think they might just be white labeling the delivery and not building their own CDNs and... I wonder if in the future Nginx, um, Netflix will come out ahead just because they had their own CDN in control of this. Yeah, that they have made some technical decisions early on that are now bringing them to the uh, to the front, which they have been at the while. But now the other ones like Disney and whatever else is there. Yeah, like what what's Disney Plus using? Yeah, I I, I don't know what Apple's using. Apple, Apple traditionally used Akamai as their CDN mm. platform. Uh, they probably have a mixture of stuff. Even like Paramount, I mean, what? Yeah, that would be interesting to hear. I mean, of course, they don't want to talk about this because competitors are listening. But it would be interesting to see from a technical standpoint what is yeah. 
and possible. and so like if you're if you're using a white label service or like you know a, another CDN, you don't want to talk about the CDN you use, even though it's very easy to figure out. Mm. But if you build your own CDN, no one can compete with that very easily. They have to spend a lot of like capital. Yeah. If 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 you're listening to the show and you have you know read recent tech articles about how other streaming video providers are building out the CDNs, I'd love to hear it. Like, mm. is it all just Azure somehow, and they get bytes for cheap? Probably, yeah. I don't know. Like, it'd be cool. Would even make a great conference talk, but that's probably even more NDA. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, we continue in our news roundup this week with uh, protect your web servers against PHP shells and malwares. Who doesn't want that? Um, on this blog, which I cannot pronounce the author without getting into Oscar. trouble. Yeah, that I could. And Constantine was nice, uh, easy, but... Kanzaki? Uh, Kanzanchi? Probably. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for doing this to your name. Yeah, it's in the URL. People can find it. Um, it goes, hello there. It's been a long time since I wrote something here. Um, there's a couple other nice BSD-related write-ups on the left side that you can click on, my free BSD write-ups. And this one is about the PHP shells and malware protection. Um, in the FreeBSD package repository, there's an effective and well-known antivirus software called ClamAV, which I install on almost all the servers I manage. It's fast, efficient, and stable. While the virus signature database that comes with ClamAV may be sufficient for regular systems or mail servers, uh, like detecting viruses, infiltrating XE, ZIP, RAR, DOCX, XLS, Sheet, whatever files, when it comes to web servers, we need much more effective and deep signature databases. ClamAV is indeed a very good antivirus anti-malware tool, However, it's incapable of detecting malicious code infiltrating PHP files. At this point, free third-party signature databases come into play and save us. We can use the database to extend ClamAV signature database collection with better detection of malicious files, dangerous shell scripts, PHP malware on a web server. So that's what this is about. Uh, here are a few reasons why PHP shells can pose significant risk to a server. Unauthorized access. PHP shells provide a convenient way for attackers to browse the content on local files and gain unauthorized access to a server. Once an attacker uploads and executes a PHP shell on a server, they can exploit its functionalities to execute arbitrary commands, access files and directories, everything's going to hell. Next is command execution. With a PHP shell, an attacker can execute system commands on the server. This capability enables them to run malicious scripts, launch further attacks, or manipulate system resources. They can also leverage the server's computing power for activities like cryptocurrency, mining, is that still a thing, or launching distributed denial of service attacks. Okay, then there's data theft and manipulation. I just covered the main points here because I think a lot of people are uh, aware of this persistence and backdoor access, as well as malware distribution. Uh, we'll be using free ClamAV databases from malware.expert, URL house, secure, secured info, inter-server, RFXN, and sane security. Okay, they describe each what they uh, provide, but we can skip to that. Let's go to the how-to part or to the how to do this thing. First of all, they do package install dash y clam av. You get the port in the first place. Then you add a couple lines to your uh, rc.conf using sysrc, uh, namely clam av clam d enable equals yes. Clam av fresh clam enable to get updates to yes. Uh, clam av fresh clam flags uh, dash c1. The c1 is the 
number of times per day it should check for a new database, so once a day is okay, and n can be between 1 and 50. Oh wow, then you're really like uh, <laughs> needing new for a fresh blood every time. Um, now we can run flash clam to get the initial database, and then the uh, further ones will be done by the service. Uh, you get the default clam AB database. Uh, we start the service, of course. Service claim AB clam D, service claim AB clam D status is checking whether that is actually running. And then you run another flash clam to kind of update that database to have the really latest stuff. Okay, so next up, they create a root slash test vir. Oh, yeah, they're really downloading a test uh, virus to see if everything works. And uh, they try that. These databases are sufficient for detecting malicious PHP codes and files. Um, they are downloading uh, some file PHP files containing malicious code samples. Okay, so then let clam scan run on that file or on that directory, and it certainly finds those trojans, whatever bad things that could be uh, detected. Okay, scan summary at the end. All nice, good. Then. Uh, as we see above, only 10 of 37 malicious files were successfully detected. That's a pretty low ratio. So now let's improve it by adding external third-party signature databases. So they log into various of the sites mis uh, mentioned earlier and download their databases to make that a bit more smart or include that in the ClamAV databases. And certainly next fresh Clam runs will incorporate those databases. And then the Clam scan will detect a lot more this time it's 37 files. Oh no, uh, sorry, 30 out of 37 files. Not too shabby, but definitely uh, can be even better, but uh, better than nothing. So if you wish, you can run ClamAV as one of your cron jobs, perform daily or weekly periodic scanning all of your websites, and check the results from the scan result.log file. Uh, they created a shell script that does that, and that's pretty much it for the article. So definitely good to know about this. Run and find all the bad stuff before it hits other systems or does more damage to yours or other systems. I, I love it when tools have jokes put into them like Fresh Clan. Yeah. <laughs> all right, next up we have a post from the FreeBSD forums, and this was on Sunday, the 18th of June, so three days ago. Uh, how to installing and running GitLab. Um, Seymour's writes, I originally installed GitLab on FreeBSD 12.4, attempting to follow the article at 1, um, unixcop.com. Uh, while this is a good starting point, things have changed over time because there are numerous things not mentioned that need to be done to get things going properly. So I started with this post with the intent to outline the whole installation procedure. It should work on a recent 12.4 and 13.2 alike requirements. Obviously, you need a recent up-to-date FreeBSD install. You may either use everything on one box or separate the database onto a different box, jail, or VM. Uh, you need FreeBSD, internet access. <laughs> what? what a weird day. Things keep requiring the internet. Uh, recently, uh, recently patch, recent patches installed. Uh, you need to install GitLab C, Nginx, SSMTP, and Go120. And on the database system, you need Postgres um, 12, server and postgres 12 contrib if you're running with database on your web server you can just add these packages to your install command you don't need the con you do not you do need to install the contrib package as well as gitlab 
requires database extensions to be installed for its database. I won't outline how to get your Postgres database up and running. I believe there are numerous other how-tos out there that outline this process in sufficient detail. Suffice to say, you need to get your database up and running before you proceed. Um, you need to add a GitLab user. It appears GitLab requires a proper home directory for the Git user. Um, you need to configure outbound email. You need to prepare the database. So once the database is up and running, um, log into that server, you need to prepare a database account and at least for the installation, provide it super user permissions. GitLab's database setup script drops any previously existing database, creates a new instance, and then attempts, attempts to install extensions. The later usually fails unless the user running the migration script has super user permissions. Once a database has been set up by GitLab, you can of course remove super user permissions. We'll do this in the course of installation at a later stage once we're done with the database setup. For now, switch to Postgres user and prepare. Um, you need to configure Redis. Um, Redis. GitLab requires Redis to be configured and running, so we uh, do that. Um, and then we configure GitLab. On the web server, there are a few important directories you need to keep in mind for your GitLab installation. Uh, user local www, uh, GitLab C is the root path for the installation. Uh, there's a config file under there, a log file under there. And user local etc nginx is where nginx keeps this configuration. Mm, I'm skimming this, I'm sorry. Um, you need to prepare database tables, pre-compile the front end, enable GitLab service and start. Now we allow GitLab to actually start. Turn on the web server. And now it should be up and running. And if you go to your domain, you'd be asked for the new root user password. What? Um, and that will complete the setup. And then you should have um, a GitLab account. And you should really disable GitLab user registration unless you want to run a public site, which you probably don't. Um, thank you, Seymour's. It's always good to have documentation. There's some follow-up in the uh, forums thread. I'm sure in the past you could just package install GitLab and it would all work, but maybe there's a lot more to it. Yeah, I hear it's difficult to upgrade GitLab, but I might be mistaken. I haven't done it myself yet. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the commentary here is that the upgrades are really difficult because mm. it's very picky about versions. Yeah, but definitely GitHub, uh, GitLab, uh, good stuff. Having a free uh, alternative to GitHub. Um, yeah, so that's the how-to. And we are jumping into our beastie bits. We collected a couple of them. So the first one is a world build in 36 hours on a Pentium 4. Remember those? And that is uh, the uh, little screenshot here from a complete, complete successful free beastie build. Uh, world build completed on May 28th, uh, 2023. Uh, world build completed in, wow, <laughs> 100. 29, wait. 129,700 seconds. seconds. Yeah, on two CPUs. Pretty fast. You should get some more CPUs. Um, didn't, oh, wait, didn't you run the experiment on FreeBSD 1.0 on one of uh, your older systems? Does I, that have built I, I never, yet? I never built worlds. <laughs> I built the kernel and it took 36 minutes. This will, yeah. I don't, but, well. I don't have enough disk space to build worlds and the BIOS won't boot anything with more than um, 256 megabytes. Like, I need to understand how I can get it to boot more under the pile of stuff, under all the JTAG adapters on my desk, which I'm going to send Benedict a picture of. Um, 
there is a SCSI card, uh, like an ooh, ISIS SCSI card ooh, ooh. for the 386. I just need to find it now. It's under a lot of stuff. There's the archaeological layers here. Yeah. Well, it's not just the card. You need the cables and the terminators. I have, I have a, a blue SCSI 2, which is a Raspberry Pi Pico-powered SCSI adapter, which turns an SD card into SCSI. Oh, I, I, I understand you can chain through the SCSI bus on the blue SCSI 2 to have other devices. And I've seen someone connect to the internet through it on their Mac um, SE. So, yeah, this is fun. But I've got Ethernet, so I don't, I don't need Wi-Fi. Mm, okay. Anyway, yeah, cool so here, here goes that. <laughs> next next in the Beastie Bits, we have a post from x61.sh, and it is fart in it. No, I don't have a plugin installed. Fart in it. It's a little script that tries to get cloud init files, metadata, user data, network data, to configure the server with. After that, it will clean up the server and itself. The idea is to create a new and clean server from a template, like Proxmox QMU, with a basic and minimalistic configuration. What can it do? Fart in it can do set a main user and SSH keys, set a root password, set the network, DHCP or static, install a list of packages soon. What it can do, it won't resize or change partitions on your VM, configure any services on the base system. You should do it with something else. Um, by default, it will enable unwind as the resolver, disable sound IO since I assume this is a server, clean up all packages installed, delete all residual files in the server that are not standard, delete the user given as a main and create it again. I based far init on cloud init's files. So for it, you will need three files, metadata, user data, and network data. Each one of them has information that will be extracted by far init to set up with the server. You can give these three files in two different ways to far init, over cloud init on Proxmox, over a web server reachable from the VM. Uh, if you will serve the files by Proxmox, it will just fill the cloud init information as you want and regenerate it. That should be enough. If you want to serve the files over a web server, they should look like this, and there's examples. As I said, you can serve these files with a web server, HTTPD, or just using Python, um, like, and then there's an example of running a Python server. How to use it. After created your OpenBSD template, you need to download fart in it and give it permissions, something like this. Um, and that's pretty much it. Keep in mind, this is a very early version of it, and it could, it could fail. I ran it several times on my setup without issues, but this could change in yours. During the first booting process, you'll see something like this, a great fart in it ASCII art, um, and then uh, a list of what I found. And on the second boot, it will should conf could not configure anything more than it needs to. Cool. What a great name for a tool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another person who does give things good names is Michael W. Lucas. You know where this is going to. Um, he has another article on his blog, Organized Freebies. And that goes, it's taken a while, but I finally have all I think of my supposed to be free stuff organized dish on a single page. So that's a link. Uh, and I use freebies the same way Costco does in the hope that uh, you will try a taste and return for more. You can get a few free titles from my ebook store or other lesser retails, lesser retailers. If you sign up for my notification mailing list, I'll offer you a free copy of Tarsnap Mastery. The fiction list gets you seven free stories over six weeks. Oh, wow. The email marketers call that an onboarding sequence. <laughs> I call it seven stories is a lot. Let's break that up into something manageable. Anyway, free stuff. 
Uh, organizing freebies isn't just about luring people into my library clutches, though. <laughs> um, looking at kickstarting another short story collection this summer, uh, in part to make some dull, but mostly so I can unpublish a bunch of chapbooks. I'm seriously thinking that from now on, my short stories will be exclusive uh, to my store. I want to publish them one. I publish them. I want to publish them one, so folks can get them, but two, so I can experiment with book designs. But the maintenance overhead of publishing them on all the different stores is dreadful. But the mental load of publicizing a short-term deal like a Kickstarter is also dreadful. I loathe asking for money. No, not hate. As Terry Pratchett said, <clears throat> hate is an attracting force, just like love. I loathe it. I don't want anything to do with it. Promotion destabilizes my creative energy. This time around, I'm planning to end each promo piece with a link to my freebies page and a note along the lines of, if you don't want to give me dough, please grab something for free. I'm hoping that it let me feel better about pulling a filthy capitalism twice daily. Okay. Uh, the pedantic will note that these books aren't truly free. You must make an account somewhere to get them. And yes, that's true. I'm a business. Giving money requires making an account somewhere. Meet me in a dark alley and slip me $20 and I'll hand over a brown paper bag containing a book, sure, but online commerce requires accounts. For what it's worth, my store's privacy policy is the one I would like other retailers to use. You can delete accounts in my store. Anyway, freebies, look for the Apocalypse Moy Kickstarter later this summer. I'm, I'm pretty annoyed at Michael W. Lucas right now. I... I arranged the most convoluted way possible to buy a book from him at BSD Can, and it did not come in a brown paper bag. It, it did? Yeah, you should. Nope. No yeah. brown paper bag. Um, ah, so disappointing. I, 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 I want, I, I don't know, I want like an extra dedication on the next book I buy in person, because there's so much faff. <laughs> yeah. I'm currently reading his book about uh, running a business as an artist, because are we, aren't we artists in certain ways sitting in front of a microphone? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not through yet, but it definitely has Lucas's humor and a lot of Capybara references for some reason. Uh, so I enjoy it immensely. Thanks, Michael, for writing and uh, selling it to me. Okay, uh, next we have a short one uh, on undeadly.org, uh, contributed by Ruda from the signed, sealed, delivered department. The OpenBSD project has released version 730p0 of OpenSMTPD, the project's SMTP server. The announcement reads, in part, changes in the release uh, includes the following security fixes. Um, SMTPD could abort due to a connection from a local scoped IPv6 address, and an out-of-band access in the libc resolver resolved. And there's been some configuration changes. The certificate to use is now selected by looking at the names found in the certificates themselves rather than the PKI name. The set of certificates for a TLS listener must be defined explicitly by using PKI listener multiple times. And I think there's probably more release notes, but congratulations on getting a release out the door. Yep. And we stay with the OpenBSD journal. This time it's from the cleanliness department about shutdown reboot now requiring membership of group underscore shutdown. Those Theodorat committed changes which result in the shutdown and reboot commands in current requiring membership in the new uh, group underscore shutdown. The commit message explains the rationale. Uh, the group operator gate keeps a few super user abilities, dumping disks, manipulating tape drives, means grid 
uh, GID operator on device nodes. This group is also used with group access bit on the setUID root shutdown command uh, mode UG plus X, U plus S. Some people use this to shut down reboot their machines, but use of that group is giving them disk read access also, which is wrong. It would be a pain to read GID all the device nodes, so instead let's renumber the operator execution GID into group underscore shutdown. Users using this shutdown reboot functionality will notice it no longer works and move themselves to the correct group. Whereas choices discussed at large, this seems our best choice. So the XFCE port has already been modified to accommodate this. It's entirely possible other ports need to be updated too, so please test your favorite and maybe not so favorite software on the latest snapshot so you can get your hands on it. Cool, okay. that's actually pretty cool. That's a nice change. Um, and then last up in the Beastie Bits, we have a lightning talk from Tony Finch on their blog, um, and it's titled, Where Does My Computer Get the Time From? And Tony writes, This week I was in Rotterdam for a ripe meeting. On Friday morning, I gave a lightning talk called Where Does My Computer Get the Time From? The Ripe Meeting website has a copy of my slides and a video of the talk. This is a blogified version, not an exact exact transcript. And rather than read you uh, a lightning talk that I don't know very well, uh, you should go and read it yourself, and then you will know it better than me. Mm -hmm. But it's good. Go look it up. It looks cool. Yeah, nice illustrations and easy to follow. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated, so that band it then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key, and this key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. And Tarsnap has bug bounties, so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Okay, we are right into our feedback and questions section. If you want to be part of this section, then send us an email to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Anything you always wanted to know, anything that you're currently struggling with. Computer-wise, we're not doing psychology help and stuff. Um, but you know what we are covering. Uh, so definitely send us some feedback or stuff you do found on the web that we should cover maybe. Uh, this one is from Sam uh, about favorite episodes. And Sam writes... Dear BSD Now, in response to your call for listener feedback, yes, someone has listened. Thank you, Sam. Um, <clears throat> on favorite episodes, I found that those that spread the word about new features like OpenZFS 2 becoming standard in FreeBSD 13, OpenSSH supporting FIDO, have been really helpful for me as a user of FreeBSD. Good to know. Episodes that discuss emerging technologies like Cherry, episode 468, and RISC-V, episode 425. Oh, wow, you really uh, wrote down every episode. Um, have been great introductions that prompted me to read more about those subjects. Okay. I've also enjoyed interviews that discuss fun, real-world applications of BSDs, like the Shell community that Celine Repen administers, yep, in episode 435, and Trenton Schultz's robotics work in episode 321. Oh, yeah, that's been a while ago. Yeah, I remember. 
Of course, uh, your interviews with BSD community celebrities like Kirk McCusick, episode 278, and Theo Rat, episode 6. Oh, yeah, that was way before my time um, on the show. But yeah, I listened to that. Um, are ones I've thought, I thought of when I found your show after they aired. Coverage of stories like a NASA programmer remembers debugging a lisp in deep space, episode 465, and the 20-year-old bug that went to Mars, episode 437, are just plain cool. Thanks for producing a great show. That is nice, Sam, that you really went and did all the work writing out the episode numbers. Yeah, thanks, Sam. That's really nice. And it's great that you've gone into such depth finding these shows. I I didn't know there was a Theodore Rat interview um, until I read this question earlier. Been a while ago, feedback. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I listened to BSD now that early. That I, was with Chris Moore and, and Alan. I I did this thing years ago where I wouldn't listen to podcasts for like their first twenty episodes. Now, of course, that doesn't help the podcast, but mm. I don't know why I did this. Oh, um, so you but, wait until they are kind of established? After yeah, certain... but I don't I don't think back in twenty thirteen I was trying to listen to BSD podcasts anyway. Mm. Maybe I was. Yeah, that's there was so BSD ago. Talk back then. But... Well, BSD Talk was like 2006. Then it sort of faded out over there. So yeah. I was probably listening to that, but I don't know if I heard. I don't know how I heard about BSD now. It was probably quite a bit later because mm. I, I would have listened to a Theodore Rat interview. Uh, I've never heard very many of those. I wonder how hard would it be to have a voting system on BSD Now TV so that people can vote on their favorite episodes and we can have a ranking. Uh, I, I'm sure JT could hack that again. Hack yeah, that together like overnight. a weekend. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like an evening project. He will hate me forever. While he's, while he's editing audio, just like the, the spare hand. Yeah, if people have code ready, then why not? I mean, are, are all the episodes available through our website? I think we have all of them. Uh, Alan should have them in, in audio form. And if the I, website is good enough, uh, going back to the very first one, then make a big ranking and then people can find their episodes that most people liked uh, most and then of course it's like people who like this episode also like the other two episodes that are listed here and soon uh, enough no, be careful you don't want to just reinvent facebook yeah yeah better <laughs> not uh but definitely thanks for that great uh feedback and send more if you liked specific episodes that you remembered um that was special in certain ways for one reason or the other that gives us an idea of what to repeat maybe what interviews we should do uh, getting updates from those people or some thing that people like we haven't done enough okay that i think is the end of this episode we were happy that you stick with us throughout this week and of course the next ones uh, that are following and yeah till next time